for our brief meditation this morning and in order to prepare our minds for our thinking this day and tomorrow and all these days round about Christmas Day, I would call your attention to the first verse in the second chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. I really want to look at that phrase, those days. And I do that, of course, because they emphasize the historical character of the Christian faith. Now, that is a very good reason, and indeed, in my opinion, the main reason for observing Christmas Day at all. You will know many of you how many of our fathers and grandfathers and great-great-great-grandfathers felt that this is something that should not be done. They reacted, of course, against the abuse of this observance by Roman Catholics and others who brought in the whole idea of the Mass and many other pagan ideas. But surely we must agree that our fathers tended to react a little bit too much and went too far. Uh, in this sense only, that they tended uh, to encourage those, therefore, who pay less and less attention to the actual historicity of these events. Now, it's extraordinary that one should have to go on uh, saying this uh, kind of thing, that doubtless many of you I've read articles in the various newspapers during this past week. And if you have done so, as I have done, you will have come to the conclusion that we need more than ever to emphasize the fact that the Christian faith is a faith that is based upon facts. Now, there are two main wrong attitudes to this at the present time. The one is, there's nothing new about this, of course, but... Uh, I have to mention it because it is still being repeated as if it were something new. The one is to deny the facts altogether and to say that these are fairy tales or what they now call myths, by which they mean not so much that they uh, didn't happen at all and that there's nothing here, as that these are just stories which are meant to convey some great and profound truth. That's one attitude, that which would deny the facts altogether. But there is a second attitude, and to me this second one is even worse than the first. The first is, in a sense, ridiculous, because secular history itself uh, recognizes and acknowledges these facts, as I'm going to show you in a moment. But uh, this uh, second attitude, I feel, is worse. And it is the attitude that says this. It doesn't matter whether these things did happen or not. You see, the first view says that they didn't happen. The second view says it doesn't matter whether they happened or not. Because, they say, whether these events literally took place and uh, we've got to, to dismiss the stories of the birth in Bethlehem, in the stable, of the inn, and so on, whether it matter, happened or not, uh, really doesn't matter at all. Because we still have 
this wonderful teaching. And this is the thing that matters and that counts. As one of them put it in an article this week, the psychological influence still remains. The influence of the stories still remains. And therefore, the facts, in a sense, don't matter at all. And one of them, in an article which I read, uh, quoted a man like the late Mr. Gandhi to that effect. And she was pretending to write as a Christian, whereas Mr. Gandhi always said that he was nothing but a Hindu and had never been and never wanted to be a Christian. But, you see, this is the attitude that the facts really are irrelevant. That what matters is the psychological effect of reading all that we have in the New Testament upon us. And that the psychological effect is to make us feel better, to make us feel more friendly and well-disposed towards others, and to fill us with a desire to help them, and to relieve suffering, and to do good, and so on. Well, now, that, of course, is, as I say, the very worst form of denial of the Christian faith. To start with, it's got no answer at all to those who reject the whole of Christianity in terms of psychology. It plays straight into their hands. It likewise has no answer to give to the cults that are round and about us at the present time. The cults can do people a lot of good. And they do it simply in terms of suggesting, suggesting a certain teaching, suggesting to people that they're better and that they should be better and that they should be helpful and so on and so forth. And that reduces all this to nothing but a form of psychological teaching calculated to make us all better people than we were before. Now, the fallacy, of course, behind all that kind of attitude is this that it reduces the Christian message to a teaching, to an elevating teaching, an uplifting teaching, a very noble teaching. But after all, it's nothing but a teaching. That's their attitude, that what we've got here is a point of view with regard to life, an attitude to life, uh, an excellent attitude, and that this is the thing that the world needs. And therefore, what we should be concerned about is to get the spirit of this message into men and women so that they'll be better people and live better lives and as the result we shall have a better world. Now that I say is not only the greatest denial of the Christian faith, it is in many senses the most hopeless attitude to life that is conceivable for this reason. The world has been trying to put itself better by means of teaching for so long and patently it can't do it. And so if we are left this morning with nothing but an exhortation or a stimulus or the psychological suggestion of noble and wonderful teaching, well, the end is that we are still left to ourselves. And you and I have got to do it. We've got to take up this teaching. We've got to remind ourselves of it constantly. And we've got to be repeatedly putting it into practice. But it leaves it entirely to us. And if we happen to be people who are not interested in reading and in intellectual matters and in idealism and so on, well, then it's got nothing at all for us. If we're the victims of drink or of drugs or of anything like that, it's got nothing to give us at all. It simply comes to us and tells us that what we are doing is wrong, we ought to be better, and we ought to be living a better life. Let's read this New Testament and get, try and catch this spirit and so on. What's the value of that? 
to people who are the helpless, hopeless victims of sin and evil and iniquity, who've lost their interest and lost their willpower and lost everything else. Now, we are living in a world like that. And if the message of Christianity is simply some sort of psychological teaching, well, then I say we are left in a completely and entirely hopeless position. But, my dear friends, all that is a travesty of Christianity. We are here this morning to celebrate a fact, to celebrate an event. In those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. This is a history book. It's as much a history book as any other history book. And here we are reminded that we are in the realm of concrete facts and events. And what I want to do now, very briefly and hurriedly, is to give you a number of thoughts or ideas or principles, if you like, which you can think out for yourselves and work them out at leisure. Concerning this whole matter of the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ to time. Now that's the thing that is emphasized by Christmas Day. That at a given point in history, the Son of God came into this world. Now that's not an idea. That's not a psychological suggestion or teaching. That's an event. It's a fact. And you see, this record and the other records will insist upon our observing the detailed facts of history. They even tell us here this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And you can check that. You can check that from the secular history books. And you'll find that it is correct. And on it goes. This is a great book of history. You see, we are told here that uh, Joseph and Mary went up because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. In other words, they kept registers. We are in the realm of registers. Record offices, genealogies, family trees. That's what we are concerned about. Not with some wonderful elevating teaching which can suggest better things to us. We are concerned, and thank God for it, it's what makes Christmas Day Christmas Day. God hath visited and redeemed his people. It's something that's happened. And it's happened in time. Well, now, look at the staggering nature of this event which took place. What does the Bible tell us about this? What does it tell us about that babe? What is his relationship to time? Well, the first thing it tells us about him always is that he was before time. In the beginning was the word. And beginning there, remember, means, well, before the beginning. When there was no beginning, it's before the beginning. That means eternity. That means that he always was. That there was never a time when he wasn't. Now this is the fundamental proposition of the Christian faith. We are not here to celebrate the birth of a great man. It's all right to celebrate the births of great men and all concerning their lives and their activities. But that is not what we are doing. We are here to commemorate, to bring to mind, to think again of the coming of the eternal Son of God. Out of the eternity, into time, in the beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or if you prefer it, take the way that the Apostle Paul puts it, in writing to the Corinthians in that 
famous second chapter of his first epistle. He says he was being criticized, you remember, by certain people in the church at Corinth for not being sufficiently philosophical. You see, people were the same in the first century as they are now. They wanted ideas. They wanted philosophies. They didn't talk about psychology then, but they meant exactly the same thing. And uh, they were criticizing the apostle because he always kept the facts. He was preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he answers them saying, We speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. Listen, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Here, you see, is this same idea. Before the world, before the creation of the world, before time, before any of these things had come into being at all, he was. You see, we are looking into the great eternal mystery of the blessed Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You can't understand Christmas unless you start there. These three persons, coexistent, co-eternal, co-equal, in every respect, the three in one, of course, an everlasting mystery that our poor, feeble minds cannot hope to grasp and comprehend. But that's the way to look at Christmas. You look at that child, but you don't start there. Where's he come from? And he's come from before time, out of time. He's come from the eternity itself. So then the second step which we have to take is this, and it's a thing which you find repeated so often in the New Testament that he was manifested in time. Now that's how, that's how the, the description is always given. That there he was in eternity and God's great plan for salvation was there elaborated. But at a given point in time, it all was made manifest. Now here is, is a great and a controlling idea in the scriptures. Let me just read some verses to you to, to, for you to see exactly what I have in my mind. It's, it's a vital part of the scriptural teaching. Take, for instance, Paul's first epistle to Timothy in the second chapter, where he puts it like this in the beginning of verse 3. He says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Then, here it is, For there is one God, and one and only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. That's the idea. Testified in due time. Or take it again in the next chapter, 1 Timothy 3.16. Without controversy, says the apostle, great is the mystery of godliness. Why? Well, God was manifest in the flesh. That's what we are celebrating. That the one who was outside time, beyond time, before time, timeless, has entered into time, manifested in God was manifest 
in the flesh. Now, here is the thing that happened, you see, at Bethlehem. That there is a manifestation, a revealing, a coming into time, and a visibility in time of the invisible and the eternal God. Or the Apostle Peter uh, tells us exactly the same thing in his first epistle, again in the first chapter. Listen to it like this. For as much, he says, as you know, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who by him do believe in God. Now there's the idea, and I could give you endless other quotations. Keep your eye on that. It's the way to understand the mystery of this birth that took place there in the stable of the inn at Bethlehem. It is a manifestation in time of the one who is outside and beyond time. And then there's another aspect of this matter that I must put before you. Did you notice that verse in the hymn that we've just been singing, the great hymn of Charles Wesley's, the second verse? Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Now listen, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Late in time, behold him come. What does Charles Wesley mean by that? Well, that's the most important principle. There's a great mystery here. But it is an essential part of the whole of the biblical message. You see, you must go back to the creation. Why did this birth take place? Why did the eternal come into time? Why is the invisible God taking on this visible form? Why? Well, the answer is, and it, it is the only answer. He came because of the state of the world, because of the state of mankind. He came to redeem. He said himself, the Son of Men is come to seek and to save that which is lost. But the question that people often ask is this. Why didn't he come earlier? You read the account of the creation of men, how he was made in the image of God and that he was perfect, and God put him into a perfect environment. But men foolishly listened to the temptation and the suggestion of the devil, and he rebelled against God and he fell. And he brought down misery and unhappiness upon himself. And he was driven out of paradise. He was thrown out. And God set a guard at the entry into the garden. The flaming sword, you remember, and the cherubim. Preventing men getting back to paradise. Now from that moment, the history of the human race has been one of misery, unhappiness, striving, trouble, pain, and problem. The world has been, ever since men rebelled against God, as it is this morning, a world of trouble and of sorrow, pain, and unhappiness. There it is. And man has been striving to get back into paradise. He's been doing his utmost. That's the whole story of civilization. But he can't do it. 
He's failed completely. And he's failing as much this morning as he's ever done. The world is pronouncing the truth of the Bible by living as it is at this present time. And what we are celebrating is this, what God has done about this situation. He has sent his son into the world in order that the world through him might be redeemed. But people often ask, why didn't he come at once? Why didn't the Son of God come? Why wasn't he born immediately after the fall of men? The moment men was thrown out of paradise, why didn't he come then? Why this long interval? Now, whatever your view may be of biblical chronology, we can at any rate be certain of this, that even accepting the most conservative figures, which have been traditionally accepted, the chronology of Archbishop Asher, there was at any rate 4,000 years from the fall of men to the birth of the babe of Bethlehem. And since then, there has only been, well, not yet 2,000. We are coming to the end of the 2,000th year, at the end of this century. So you see that Charles Wesley is right. Late in time, the centuries have passed. But suddenly he comes. He comes at this point in those days when the decree went forth from Caesar Augustus. Why, why so late in time? Why were all the centuries allowed to pass before God sent his son into the world? And there is an easy answer to give to that. There's no trouble. And the answer is this, my dear friends. Man is so stubborn in his Foolish self-regard. Man is so madly confident of his own innate powers and abilities that he had to be convinced that he couldn't save himself. You see, if the Son of God had come almost immediately after the fall of men, well, then men would have said, Ah, oh, but if I'd only been given a chance, I could have done it myself. God didn't give us a chance. You see, he developed this enmity towards God. His mind was set against God. He rebelled against God. And he's now confident that he can handle things himself. And if God had sent his son, then men would have said, Ah, we could have done it. Very well, God gave him at least 4,000 years in order to prove to him that he couldn't do it. Late in time. Read your history, my dear friends. Read the biblical history. Read the story of how God gave people, these children of Israel, a law and said to them, if you can keep this law, you can save yourselves. You say you can, you rebel against me, you say that you don't need my help very well, you're always turning to other gods. If you think you can do it, well, get on with it, do it. Here's my law, that's how I ask you to live. Keep that if you can. And they couldn't do it. And by when the babe of Bethlehem was born, it was obvious that they couldn't do it. The Apostle Peter puts it on one occasion by saying that it was a yoke that was grievous to bear and more than our fathers could bear. Nobody could keep it. But not only that, you see. God gave ample time to the great civilizations that you can read about in the Old Testament and in secular history books. The great civilization of Babylonia, we think the world is wonderful today, and it is in a sense, but you know, relatively speaking, it's no greater than it was in the time of Babylon. You read the story of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. 
here is civilization, here's men going to put everything right. Well, it came and it went, followed by that of Meda, Persia, the Medes and the Persians. Then you come to the great story of the Greeks. Here at last are the people who are going to put the world in order, the philosophers. The others were warriors and kings. They'd got their wise men, their seers, but at last here's a nation of thinkers, philosophers, great men of understanding. These are the men who are going to put the world right, and they taught and they brought their plans of utopia. They are going to put the world in order. It all went. The glory that was Greece, typified by the Acropolis and so on. There it is, the failure, the nothing. And after that, the great Roman Empire, with its law, its legal system, its local government, its devolution of government, the masterpiece, in a sense, of local government as devised by Rome, all that had been and had come. And the world was still in trouble and pain and still lost. Late in time, that's why. He could have come at any time, but he comes after the, all these centuries of striving and useless, futile, vain effort. Why? Well, to show the world and to establish to the whole of mankind that man cannot save himself. And so he comes late in time. But thank God I don't leave it at that. I add immediately to that, though it was late in time, it was in the fullness of time. You remember the great statement of the Apostle to the Galatians? When the fullness of the times was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. It's late but it's only late in the sense that the centuries had passed. It's not late in God's timetable. We are accustomed to timetables that are not kept. The bus isn't unscheduled. The train is late. There's the schedule, but it isn't kept. Not so with God, my friends, in his relationship to time. Oh, yes, it's very late if you look at it from the standpoint of the long story of the human race. But it's not late in the sense in which we generally use that term. It doesn't mean that something's gone wrong. No, no. When the fullness of the times was come, God's appointed time, the time that was planned before the beginning of time, the plan that was made before the foundation of the world and to our glory, this time that was known to God and the hour it struck and he sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law, born of a virgin. Truly man, and yet God, has to be man to be under the law in order that he might redeem those that are under the law. And here to me is one of the most consoling and wonderful things about Christmas. The fullness of time, God's time, what does it tell us? Well, it tells us this, you see, and this is the great hope that should be in every one of our hearts this morning, that God is independent of this world and of what happens in it. I've reminded you hurriedly of the story of the great civilizations I might have thrown in, the civilization of China and the civilization of Egypt, 
On top of what I've said, these great civilizations and the world is interested in them, but you know, they're more or less irrelevant. And thank God, God is utterly independent of them. He acts quite apart from them. He permits them, I say, for his own purpose, to show their final uselessness and futility. And then he acts at his own appointed hour, at his own appointed moment, when he feels that the conditions are such that this can be done, he does it. At the exact moment, at the exact place, everything as it had been prophesied and predicted. Or you can look at it, if you like, in this way. The birth of that babe in Bethlehem is the proof of the supremacy of God. The world can't save itself, but it can't prevent God from saving it either. He acts independently of it. It cuts across its schemes, its plans, its programs, and all that it can think of and devise. The world was against this babe when he was born. Read your Gospels again. Look at a king like Herod. Look at all of them. They were against him. And it's been against him ever since. It doesn't matter. God is before time. He's above time. He's independent of time. And he can break into it in spite of the opposition of the world and all its peoples. The birth of the babe at Bethlehem tells us that this morning. Late in time, behold him come. Yes, but at the exact moment when the fullness of the times was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman made under the law. And you see, the next thing is this. His coming is the center of time. When I mean the center, I don't mean the exact number of years. I'm not suggesting that there will be 4,000 years after his birth before the end of the world. I think there's a great deal to be said rather for 2,000 years after his birth. That doesn't matter. We don't know about that. But what I do know is this, that his coming in the fullness of the times has made him the center of time. And oh, this is something in which as Christian people we should rejoice this morning. This babe was born and the world took no notice, paid no attention, no room in the inn. They were aware of the great people who had booked the best rooms in the inns of Bethlehem. They knew nothing about this poor woman who had to go to the stable to give birth to her child. They knew still less about the babe, and so he's got to be put into a manger. There was no crib for him. The world doesn't know. It doesn't understand. It thinks this is insignificant and unimportant. Or like certain clever modern people probably regarded him as an illegitimate child. That's the kind of blasphemy that is being uttered in the name of Christianity by certain people today. But that, you see, is just ignorance and darkness and blindness. Here is a babe born who has come from the beyond, outside time, into time, and his influence upon time is to change everything. He is the end of an age, he's the beginning of another. Your Old Testament looks up to this. Your New Testament looks back at, at this. He divides. You'll find this. You can't understand your New Testament if you're not clear about this point. At the end of the age, we are told that these last times, in these last days, you see that is what he's done. He's ended an era, an epoch. He started a new one. Old Testament, New Testament. 
the old dispensation, new dispensation, or put it in more ordinary terms. Ever since this child came into the world, your ordinary calendars have to be changed. Everybody now talks about B.C., A.D. He's the turning point. B.C., before Christ, that's your history, that's your chronology. He's come. Years of the Lord, Anno Domini. After Christ. Here is one, you see, who coming into time divides it, is the center. He's a kind of fulcrum. Everything turns around him and nothing is ever the same again, even time itself. And for me to conclude, we can't leave this matter without reminding you of this. He came from the eternity into time. He spent a number of years here in this world, subject to time and subject to all the things to which you and I are subject. And then he went back again into the glory and into the eternity. Does that mean that he's finished with time? No, it doesn't. He is still concerned about time. And what I mean is this, you see, you can't think of that coming of the babe of Bethlehem without thinking of who he was. And you can't think of who he was and what he's already done when he was in this world without thinking of him now. And there you see him seated at the right hand of God in the glory everlasting. What's he doing? Well, we are told by the author of the epistle to the Hebrews that he is sitting and waiting until his enemies shall be made his footstool. And that means this, that that selfsame Jesus will again come. He will again enter into this world. He will again break into time. What will be his relationship to time then? Oh, he will come then to end time. And time shall be no more. He's going to wind up time, finish it, bring an end to the universe as we know it. And then he will reign from pole to pole. And all in earth and heaven and under the sea and everywhere will bow the knee to him and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, this is how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. Then cometh the end. And the end comes when he comes again into this world and judges it in righteousness, gathers those who rejoice in the babe of Bethlehem, in the man Christ Jesus, especially the Christ of the crucifixion, the cross dying to bear the punishment of our sins, the buried Christ, the risen Christ, the ascended Christ, the reigning, ruling Christ, all who rejoice in this blessed person, he will gather to himself, and they will reign with him and enjoy his glory forever and forever and forever beyond time in the eternity everlasting. He will end time and hand back to God the Father a universe purged of sin and evil 
and rebellion and wrong and ugliness and all that is foul. He will hand back to his father a restored, a regenerated, a perfect universe peopled with his own perfect people. Thank God. This isn't a philosophy. This isn't a psychological teaching. This is not just something telling us to be better. It is telling us what God has done to redeem us and not merely to make us better, but to make us sons of God and heirs of that eternal glory which is to come. The Son of God, as John Calvin put it, became the Son of Men, that the sinful sons of men might be made the sons of God. And you and I shall be taken out of this time relationship into the eternal glory. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift.